0: I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is Dr. Thomas Verney, author of The Embodied Mind, Understanding the Mysteries of Cellular Memory, Consciousness, and Our Bodies. So we understand the workings of the human body well enough, right? Muscles interact with bones to move us as the heart responds to hormones secreted by the brain all the way down to the inner workings of every cell. No one component can work alone. In light of this, why is it the accepted understanding that the physical phenomenon of the mind is attributed only to the brain? Internationally renowned psychiatrist, Dr. Thomas Verney, sets out to redefine our concept of the mind and consciousness. He compiles new research that points to the mind's ties to every part of the body. He collects disparate findings from many fields of science in order to illustrate the mounting evidence that somatic cells, not just neural cells, store memory, inform genetic coding, and adapt to environmental changes, all behaviors that contribute to the conscious mind. Uh, He previously taught at Harvard University and is presently associate editor of the Journal of the Association for Pre- and Perinatal Psychology and Health. Welcome to the show, doctor. Nice to have you on today.
1: Thank you. It's a pleasure.
0: Okay. We have to kind of, um, we want to understand all of what I just read in the intro in layman's terms. What does that mean for us? What are we saying? That the, if our mind is controlled by many things, uh, that we are sort of, an, I guess, an integrated body, right? So uh, let, let's begin with that. How does it work for us?
1: Well, you know, if if you look at society and how society has worked for many, many years, we realize that we have been living in a patriarchy for a very long time. And one of the signatory events that happens in a patriarchy is that everything is from the top down. So if you look at the United States government, for example, you know, there's a president and there are... Uh, Secretaries of State, then there is uh, the Senate, the House, etc. So it's all top down. And science and medicine in particular has adopted the same kind of a system. So all the emphasis in science has always been on the brain. And most scientists have looked at the mind as an epiphenomenon. In other words, A byproduct of the brain. Uh, Some have compared it to the kidneys. You know, the kidneys make urine and the brain makes the mind. Now, of course, you know, nothing could be further from the truth. That's really not comparing uh, apples and oranges. It's comparing apples and doorknobs. It's like a whole different game because the mind is not material. Nobody can measure it. Nobody has seen it. We know it's there because we use it every day. So what I'm saying is, first and foremost in my book is that this emphasis of top-down, of everything coming from the brain, uh, does not reflect the true state of affairs in the way our body works, because not only is it... I I, I don't object to the fact that there is a top-down communication, but... What has not been emphasized, and what I'm trying to bring you, our viewers, and uh, well, not the viewers, I guess, it's the <laughs> audience,
0: our and, listeners, uh, yeah, and uh,
1: and and the, and the scientific community in general. What I'm trying to do is awake them to the fact that it's also bottom up, and bottom up is in many instances much more important than the top down. So. If I may have another minute or two to explain this, yes?
0: Yeah, go ahead. So it's not the bottom. It's, I mean, starting bottom up. Yes, I'm trying to get a visual of that. Is, what does that mean? What
1: it means is that, for example, Howard University um, publish uh, every couple of weeks, sometimes weekly, uh, a kind of a health letter. And mm-hmm. in it, they talk about the importance of the brain-gut system and having said that, they go on to tell you about how stress, anxiety, depression affects the gut. So you have like ulcerated colitis and your usual ulcers and all those kinds of things and what they say and what science has been saying for a very long time is that if you are anxious, which is coming from the brain, Therefore, your gut is going to react in an unhealthy way. But nobody talks about the fact that it's actually the gut bacteria, the microbiome, as it's called, which actually uh, weighs about five pounds in every person. We have five pounds of bacteria in our intestinal tract. And it is those bacteria that actually decide um, what sort of messages to send to the brain. And it is very likely that very often we are anxious or depressed because of the effect that the bacteria have on the gut. So that's what I mean by bottom-up. Um, for example, it has, it has been shown that people who are lonely have a much less diversified gut microbiome Than people who have a lot of social interactions. That this is incredibly
0: important. That's incredible. Yes, and I I guess the question is then. So it seems like, well, it's a 180 from this patriarchal view of the mind controlling everything. So it's, you're saying it's the opposite. So how does that fit into how we perform in everyday life? Let's say, okay, it's our gut that's causing us to be, we don't have enough bacteria or whatever the scientific reason is. So we are depressed or we're anxious. Uh, How do we reverse that if we're working from the bottom up rather than the top down? (laughs)
1: Well, first of all, we have to become aware of it, right? Um, mm-hmm. Most people are not. By the way, I didn't say that it's the opposite. All I'm saying is that we need to equalize uh, our, our efforts at finding answers to all kinds of health problems. Um, if you're only looking for the answer to Alzheimer's disease, for example, in the brain, you will never find the real answers because the brain is connected to the body, and everything that, help, that happens in the body also influences the brain, you see? So it's kind of a, it, it's a closed loop, going back and forth, back and forth. And what science has mistakenly done is to totally focus their attention on the brain. So in terms of your answer... Um, I think that what we need to become more and more aware and ask our scientists to investigate more is the effect that many body structures have on the brain, which means on our emotions, our feelings. Um, For example, there's a lot of research uh, that, that shows that most of the serotonin in our bodies, and I'm sure you're familiar, serotonin is a neurotransmitter, and it seems to be low in people who suffer of depression. So that's why psychiatrists, doctors, uh, prescribe serotonin reuptake inhibitor, drugs which are then supposed to make you feel happier. But nobody tells you that 80% of the serotonin in the body is produced in the gut. It's not produced in the brain. And so we need to look at how we can make more serotonin in the gut rather than trying to increase the serotonin concentration in the brain okay. so how do uh, we do way, that
0: how I want to like uh, getting that I real it's as you say it's not a dichotomy it's all integrated and we so, have to pay attention to all parts of the body so taking the gut so then instead of yes. giving serotonin uptakes to people who uh, have Alzheimer' or uh, who are depressed what do we how do we actually treat that in well, combination with the gut? before we
1: can treat them, we have to do some research. We have to see, first of all, what kind of gut bacteria that particular person has, and then fit the medicine to that particular gut microbiome. You cannot treat everybody the same way because everybody has a different gut microbiome. So if you want your antidepressants or any of the psychotropic drugs to work properly. They have to be suited to the particular gut microbiome that you have. That's, that's the reason that, for example, so many antidepressants don't work. Uh, the pharmaceutical companies are not going to tell you this, but I can tell you that. <laughs> uh, you know, in terms of antidepressants, one third of patients respond very well. One one third of patients does not respond. They don't get better. They don't get worse. And one third has to stop taking it because it makes them sick. So, like, this is not a panacea. And the reason that it's not working with everyone is because everyone is different. So, practically speaking, as you quite rightly asked, what can we do about this? Practically speaking, the research has to focus on the gut microbiome and how your particular uh, bacteria react to a variety of drugs, and to find the drug that will work best for you, uh, no matter what is wrong with you.
0: What about the so difference? Has- be- yeah. Well, what about the difference between, as you're saying, each person is different, and you have to assess what their their uh, yes. I guess microbiome. You know what their yes. gut re- microbiome. Microbiome yeah. are, but what about the difference? And and it's an individual thing. So my question is, what about the diff? The huge difference between men and women? There may, you know, testosterone, yeah. estrogen. We're always preso- yeah. You know, women are prescribed the same medication as men. We're different bodies, different body types. How does that yeah. fit into what you're talking about um, in terms of the, each person as an individual and being treated as an individual? Valuable.
1: It it fits in perfectly because what I am suggesting is that the medicine of the future will be dovetailed to the person for whom it's prescribed. So not everybody who walks through through a psychiatrist's office and complains of depression is going to get the same drug. (coughs) Now, when we do electroencephalograms, when we do lab tests, when we do blood tests, there will be other tests. Which will test your microbiome, and once you get the results of that test back, you will know what kind of drugs to prescribe.
0: If we're going to do this, you're talking about the we're talking about the future. We're not talking about that it's happening now. And you also meant, you mentioned the drug companies. How does that work with what you teach medical students, for instance? Because it would seem well, to me that's uh, a, a different curriculum. Uh, it's un- yeah, it's
1: unfortunately going to happen in the future. It's happening at a few places at the moment, but it's still in its infancy. So we really need to push this forward because that's where the future of health lies. Well, when you I say
0: it, yeah, mean, you say it's, it, yeah. thing, you say it's, it's happening in certain that, places. Where is it happening uh, actually?
1: Uh, it, it, it's happening at MIT. It's happening at some of the larger Johns Hopkins. Uh, you see, one of the Another problem with this patriarchal, vertical kind of culture that we live in is that everybody specializes in a small area. You know, there's so much knowledge, um, not necessarily wisdom, in so many areas that cardiologists, you know, only look at the heart. Neurologists only look at the brain, etc. So what we need more and more are people who talk to each other um, so that cardiologists and neurologists can get together and discuss their mutual interests. Um, just to give you an example, uh, it has been shown that um, people, people who have cardiac problems uh, are at a much higher uh, risk of, de- of developing Alzheimer's. Nobody knows why that is. Um, This is a perfect example of where cardiologists and neurologists should get together, talk to each other, and find out what's, you know, find out the connection, why this is going on. Uh, We have thought that, for example, sleep is purely a problem of the brain. But recently it has been discovered that actually muscles produce a certain protein, which then is sent to the brain. And it is that protein which is very much involved in sleep. So when you have a sleep disorder, instead of just trying to treat the brain, you also have to look at this muscle protein. So this is the kind of bottom-up uh, attitude that I am trying to further.
0: Earl, uh, when I read the intro, uh, the introduction, and I mentioned that you had formerly taught at Harvard. As you're talking, it's reminding me of uh, some of the work, I guess, of Dr. David Sinclair at at Harvard. Is it, does that fit into to what you're talking about?
1: Uh, can you remind me of uh, what work that is?
0: Dr. David Sinclair, who talks about uh, actually the how our cells and the molecular. Uh, our whole system is connected or integrated, and has to do with aging. And and we, as, uh medicine today, is just focused on each specific. Uh, uh, um, you know whether you're a cardiologist or a pediatrician or an orthopedist. They're very se. You know we we treat separate parts of the body rather than looking at the whole person, as you're talking about and uh, integrating that's, all that's of these exactly systems. That's exactly
1: what I'm advocating.
0: Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes.
1: That's exactly correct, yes. And, uh, you know, more and more people will be talking about this and are talking about this. Um, What my book does, The Embodied Mind, is to try to bring a great deal of information together in one book so that it's easily accessible. Uh, You know, um, in preparation, it took me seven years to write this book. And in preparation for it, I read about 5,000 books and uh, scientific papers, of which 500 are actually referenced uh, at the back of the book. So there is an incredible, really, uh, an incredible amount of research that has gone into this book trying to show that there is such a thing as cellular intelligence, that our cells are just a lot smarter than we have ever given them credit for.
0: So, did you have you know? It took you all those years to write the book. Uh, you've been yes. a physician for a long time. Uh, was there yes. sort of an aha moment when you thought, "Hey, way we're not doing this right. Uh, there's a, there's an, a way, another way to look at it," um, or how did that? How did your? How did this evolve? You, you know, well, your thank yeah. You.
1: Thank you. Yes. Yes. Uh, I understand your question. Um, well, actually, it was the aha moment that propelled me into this whole area because about seven or eight years ago, uh, I was reading... um, I I forgot which magazine. I was reading some magazine about a 44-year-old Frenchman who uh, went to see his doctor because he had weakness in his left leg. And so they did a number of investigations, as they usually do, and to the amazement of the doctor who reported on this, this this happened in France, uh, to the amazement of the doctor who reported this, uh, this Frenchman had almost no brain tissue. His whole brain was filled with water. In medical jargon, that's called hydrocephalus, and he had only a thin sheet of actual brain tissue left. And yet, he was a 44-year-old married man with two children and uh, working, uh, working in an office. Uh, so, uh, successfully navigating his life, never having any intellectual or social problems. So, when I read that, everything kind of stopped, and I thought, how is this possible? How can it? Be? be a civil servant, father of two children, carry on without a brain. So that got me then interested, (coughs) and I started reading the literature, and I found that uh, there were a lot of reports on children who had epilepsy and had half of their brain removed, sometimes more than half of their brain, and... Many of them, not everyone, but very many of them, grew up perfectly normal. There were other reports. Uh, I remember one of a 15-year-old German girl, same thing, uh, great sense of humor, uh, quite quite bright, no problems, hardly any brain. So that's what got me interested. So then my next step was looking into animals that have no brains. for example, you know, um, there are hydra's or molds or sponges that have no neurons. not Not only do they not have brains, but they have no neurons, and they are able to go after food, propagate, uh, move out of danger, make decisions. Um, it, it's really amazing. I mean, if we had if we had a video. I could show you the video of some moles that will actually find their way through a maze to the food, and they will stop uh, in areas uh, which are blocked and then
0: move, move
1: on, and finally they find the food at the end of the maze, and after that they have no trouble finding it again and again, and so octopuses. Octopuses are wonderful. They're my, my absolute favorite animal. I don't know whether you have seen a movie. Uh, it's, it's on Netflix. It's called Octopus, My Teacher. Uh, no, I,
0: I actually had seen a recent one. I think it was a National Geographic on octopus. but I don't know if it's the same oh. one. It's probably different. But yeah. But
1: this, one, this one is amazing because it's uh, an Australian. Diver goes in every day and meets the same octopus and develops a relationship with this octopus. Uh, Octopuses don't have brains. Uh, They have neurons in their arms, but they don't have a central brain. Yet they have personalities. Uh, They have likes, dislikes. They are amazingly bright animals. Then we have birds. Incredibly small birds is 1% of the weight of your and my brain, and yet they are incredibly clever. They can recognize 30 different people, differentiate between 30 different people. So I could go on and on. Uh, What really interested me then was also heart transplants because if I am right and cells are smarter than we have given them credit for, and that cells contain fragments of memories, so that when cells work as a network, all that memory comes together, and it's like, <clears throat> it's like a backup system for the brain. The body cells are like a backup system to the brain. So,
0: I have one last question. I hate to cut you off, but we only have a couple minutes left, but I, if you can just work. answer this quickly. What are okay. some of the practical ways that we, uh, can weed the public uh, can prove, improve our lives given what you've just given us? Well, examples in the animal kingdom. Yeah.
1: yeah. Well, uh, two minutes. Not from the. <laughs> not yes. Not from the examples that I've given you because we haven't spoken yet about the power of the mind. Okay. So it is incredibly also to realize that the mind, and by this I mean not just from the brain but the mind that emanates from the whole body. The mind is incredibly powerful. Um, So um, I think we have enough time for for me to give you one very quick example. Uh, There was an experiment, a study done on 82 uh, mates, um, hotel mates, by Ellen Langer from Harvard, Harvard, a Harvard psychologist. And what she did was that one half of them, she told one half of them that their work actually actually is considered by the U.S. Surgeon General um, as, um, as, as exercise. So they were told that the risk that they do is the equivalent of exercise. So the other group was not told that. A month later, uh, the groups were compared. And the group that was the experimental group, they had lost weight. They had lowered their blood pressure. They were different, better different in so many different ways, and that was only due to the fact that they thought differently about their work. So that's a. One of the that things is a.
0: That, well, that. that, that yeah, you know, uh, we have to say goodbye. A, so I want to use that as that's our that's a last example. That is. Um, a great example to end the interview on because we need just the website that we can go to so that we can read the book, obviously, get more information and continue the conversation, I guess. So give us a website well, and our websites to go to.
1: Yes, well, the website is T like Thomas, R like Robert, Verney, dot com.
0: And that's it. Great. It, uh, you know, There's obviously so much more to talk about. I want to mention yes. the book again, The Embodied Mind, Understanding the Mysteries of Cellular Memory, Consciousness, and Our Bodies. And we've been, I've been talking to Dr. Thomas Verney, so um, go out by the book. There's lots more to talk about. Thanks so much for being on the show.
1: Catherine, it was a pleasure. Let's do it again.
0: Yes, thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye.